Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. On this episode, we'll discuss companies going public via a special purpose acquisition company, or so-called SPAC. Our special guest is Michael Klausner, the Nancy and Charles Munger Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. Professor Klausner is the co-author of a recent research paper entitled A Sober Look at SPACs. The paper analyzes the structure of SPACs and the costs built into their structure. The paper also proposes regulatory measures that would eliminate preferences SPACs currently enjoy and make them more transparent. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us about your timely research. Thank you for having me. Professor, perhaps the biggest capital market story in 2020 was the boom in SPACs. As your paper indicates, in 2020, SPACs raised $82 billion, an amount greater than all previous years combined, and nearly half of all capital raised in U.S.-listed initial public offerings. And in January of this year, SPACs raised $26 billion, a monthly record. So let's start with some basics. What is a SPAC and why are they so popular? Okay, so what is a SPAC? I'm going to give you a, a simple answer that underlying which is a lot of complications that we talk about in the paper and that give rise to some of the issues regarding returns that I expect we'll talk about in a moment. So what is a SPAC? It's a publicly held vehicle. It has a two-year lifetime uh, in which to find a private company with which to merge and thereby bring public. When a, when a private company merges with a SPAC, it becomes a public company, typically listed on the NASDAQ, sometimes the NYSE. So a merger with a SPAC is an alternative to an IPO as a means of going public. So yes, why are they popular? There's an easy answer and there's a hard answer. The easy answer, which I think is actually more correct than the hard answer, is that they're popular for the same reason financial fads have been popular in the past. That is, they're popular because they're popular. Uh, there's actually some logic to that on Wall Street. Uh, fads happen, people make money investing in fads for a period of time, and then eventually the music stops and they don't. I think that's what's going on with SPACs. So, Professor, if I'm a long-term investor, should I invest in SPACs? And more specifically, what points during the SPAC life cycle present higher risk to long-term investors relative to investors in traditional IPOs? As a long-term investor, on average, no, you shouldn't invest in SPACs. SPACs have been a money-losing proposition for investors on average in each of the past 10 years, which is basically the time frame of the current version of SPACs. We had earlier structures for SPACs prior to the financial crisis, but those were different and I'm gonna leave those aside. Since 2009, SPACs have been money-losing propositions on average for investors that invest in the long term. 
And you ask when in the life cycle is riskier or more likely to lead to negative returns than other points in the life cycle. And that gets into what I was alluding to earlier, and that is the complication, uh, or the complicated nature of a SPAC structure. When a SPAC goes public in an IPO, it issues units that typically consist of one share and one warrant. The unit price is $10 by custom, uniformly $10. Um, and at the time the SPAC proposes a merger, <clears throat> which is, as I said, is two years later, typically, the shares in that unit are redeemable for $10 plus interest. So now the units sell for $10. The units have a share and a warrant. The shares are redeemable for $10. That means the warrants are free. They are a payoff to the IPO investors for allowing the SPAC to become a publicly held company. Now, for the past 10 years, a two-year investment in SPAC units was a great investment. It's not a long-term investment. That's a two-year investment in the units. And by a two-year investment, I mean an investment that is cashed out before the merger happens. So let me step back a moment. The units, they trade for 52 days following an IPO intact as units. After 52 days, they're split into their warrant and their share components, and the warrants and the shares trade separately. Until recently, an investor that bought units right after the IPO redeemed the shares when the merger was announced and sold the warrants at that time, reaped an annual return of about 10% on its investment with zero risk to principal. The principal, the proceeds of the IPO are put into a trust and they are, you know, represent a risk-free promise to return principal to redeeming shareholders. So zero risk to principal, 10% return. That's a really good return. Add some leverage to that, it's a very good return. Now, unfortunately, since my article came out, unit prices have been bid up and it's not as good an investment as it used to be. But in some cases, that might still be a good investment. It's not a risky investment. So now the next phase is when the merger occurs or when the merger is announced. At that point, as I said, the shares are redeemable. Some shareholders redeem, some don't redeem. If the shares have popped up a little bit, some shares are sold. And those who buy the shares would presumably hold on to those shares through the merger and thereafter. Historically, that's a really bad investment. My co-authors and I found that for SPACs that merged between January 2019 and June 2020, the mean market-adjusted return after six months was negative 10%. And it got worse for those SPACs that have been around or that merged early enough uh, in that time period to have a 12-month return. If you were to compare that to an IPO, uh, the returns on SPACs post-merger are far worse. So, Professor, why are returns to unit investors so good and returns to post-merger investors so bad? Is there a connection between the two? 
Yeah, there is a there is a very close connection, and this is the core point uh, of our analysis of SPACs. As I said, an IPO investor gets the warrants for free. The value of those warrants has to come out of somebody. It, it can't be made out of nothing. So what that re- represents is dilution to the eventual shareholders of the post-merger company. Those warrants are pulling out value that will reduce the returns to shareholders post-merger while creating value for the pre-merger shareholders. So they represent dilution to the post-merger shareholders. That's a hole from which the post-merger company is going to have to climb out of in order to produce returns for the shareholders. Second point I haven't made yet, but that also begins at the beginning, is that when the SPAC is set up and goes public, its sponsor takes out what's called a promote. That equals 20% of the post-IPO equity of the company, essentially, again, for free. So you've got warrants being given out for free. You've got 20% of the shares being given out for free. And together, that's digging a potentially very deep hole in the equity of the post-merger company. Some post-merger companies will do well enough to climb out of that hole, but most don't, according to our research. Professor, your paper proposes some regulatory measures for SPACs. If you were the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, what are are the most important SPAC regulatory reforms that you would pursue? And what's your reaction to the SEC's Division of Corporation Finance's December 2020 disclosure guidance on SPACs? Broadly speaking, I would do three things. First, I would put SPACs and IPOs on a level playing field, subject them to essentially the same rules so as not to produce a regulatory bias towards SPACs, which I think we do have today. Most importantly, SPACs today have an advantage in that when they merge with a target, they have legal protection with respect to providing investors with projections and other forward-looking statements. This is considered an advantage of SPACs in selling the mergers they propose. Issuers in an IPO are subject to greater legal risk if they provide projections or forward-looking statements, and they rarely do provide that information. So I would even that out. I'm tempted to say I would leave it to the SEC to even it out in either direction. But on the other hand, given that we see SPAC shareholders losing in these merger deals, a reasonable inference is they are overpaying. And that would probably imply that the projections are doing some of the work in leading SPAC shareholders to overpay. Second, I would require that SPACs provide clear disclosure of the dilution that they've created for the merged company. And third, I would require that the SPAC disclose in detail 
what the sponsor will get out of the proposed merger. We found that in our sample period over six months, SPAC sponsors received you know, between three and 400% returns on their investments in the SPACs. So does the December 2020 guidance go far enough? In my view, no, uh, it doesn't. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guests, Michael Klausner, the Nancy and Charles Munger Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.